Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to be talking trade, foreign, and domestic with Vance Ginn of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, we're also going to find out about his musical career. Our guest today is Vance Ginn, Director of the Center for Economic Prosperity and a Senior Economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Vance, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Going into last week, there were expectations that a new NAFTA deal would be announced by the end of the week. Uh, Today, there is no deal with Canada, but the U.S. and Canada resumed talks on Wednesday. Get us up to speed. What's happening now with NAFTA? Yes, you know, NAFTA was really went into effect in 1994. So we're about almost into 25 years now with NAFTA. And so there's been this idea that, you know, it's been a drain on the American economy. And if you remember back when Ross Perot said this giant sucking sound. um, And so that's what some still still feel today that that look, we've led to less economic growth and less job creation. But the facts tell a different story. And in fact, when you look at the overall data, NAFTA has supported about 14 million jobs across the United States. And, you know, we're here in Texas, and Texas has certainly benefited from, from NAFTA with this trade agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Now, it's, it's certainly not a perfect trade agreement. Um, I always like to say that in Milton Friedman, my, one of my favorite economists, said that a trade agreement should be no more than one sentence. Um, no trade barriers between countries X, Y, and Z, period. And instead... NAFTA is more than 1,700 pages long, right? So there's a lot of picking winners and losers throughout that process. And so there's some things that maybe could be improved upon. And that's what the Trump administration has tried to do. And so last week, there was this U.S.-Mexico bilateral trade deal. Um, There's some good, bad, and ugly that's associated with that. And I hope that we can go through that today. But ultimately, we've got to get Canada on board as well. So what was the, uh, I believe that Trump has described uh, NAFTA as the worst trade deal in history or something to that effect. What, what's his principal critique of NAFTA? Yeah, so with the worst uh, trade deal in history, it really goes back to looking at trade deficits. That somehow we are losing if we have a trade deficit with other countries, meaning that we import more than we export to them. And for example, with with Mexico, we have a a trade deficit with the entire United States. And so somehow they must be winning and, and we are losing. But what I like to say is, look, trade isn't like runs in a baseball game where if 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 you have three, Doug, and I have two, then somehow you win. Um, or for hopefully it's the Astros that are winning and whatever game they're playing, um, being from Houston myself. But in, but in general, trade is not that way. And in trade, we really think about it as what's called balance of payments. There are really two sides to the, to the coin. One side being a current account, which are the exchange of, of goods across borders. And then you also have the capital account, which is the trade of financial assets or um, physical capital, if you, or financial capital, if you will. Um, thinking about stocks, bonds, 
um, even r real estate, things of that nature. And so when, when you're really looking at trade in general, you've got to think about both of these as both of the current account and the capital account expand economic growth and opportunity and lead to more prosperity overall, overall instead of just looking at just the current account and have it looking at trade deficit as being a bad. Yeah, the the running joke that I see from some people is uh, I have a I have a trade deficit with Target or name your favorite retail store. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And and in that fa in that case, I would have a trade deficit with a lot of a lot of producers and a lot of uh, outlets out there. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have a trade deficit with everybody though, at least not for a long time. Uh, no, the, it, the bank it, might come re repossess your house. Yeah, that may not be a good thing. And, and, and you know, too, when you when you think about it, I mean, sure, I have a trade deficit with, let's say, Best Buy, um, but I have a trade surplus with a lot of other folks that are out there. Um, and, you know, with with I know I had taught at Texas Tech for a while, taught at Sam Houston. I would argue that I had a kind of a trade surplus by teaching hundreds, if not thousands of students um, for quite a while. And, 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 and you know, maybe not got a lot in return, but they are they are also providing trade surpluses and other uh, ventures that they're going through. And that happens throughout the entire economy. I mean, when we look at trade, we often get bogged down by thinking of the U.S. versus Mexico, right? Or Mexico versus Canada. Um, instead, we need to think about breaking it down to people. People are the ones that are trading. Americans are trading with Mexicans and Mexicans are trading with Canadians and so forth. Um, and just like you know, the, the, the opportunities in our daily lives that we're trading with others when we go to the coffee shop. Yeah, th that's a very good point. L let's expand on that a little bit because, you know, I'm for free trade. Doug is for free trade. You're for free trade. Every, everybody here is for free trade. But not everybody is for free trade that's out there. Maybe some of our listeners and even folks that, you know, they know that free trade is the right uh, position, but they might, you know, they're not quite sure of, of what the argument is. So, you know, what, what is the basic argument for free trade? Why should we not have tariffs or trade barriers uh, or, you know, managed policies of that kind? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to set it up. I mean, when you look back throughout economic history, you talk about Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations in 1776, and he really looked at absolute what's called absolute advantage, where you know, um, maybe one country or one entity could have a productive uh, or more productive at producing all things. And so, in fact, you could have a f system of autarky to where you're producing widgets and producing wills and producing um, doors and everything else that you are more um, you have an advantage in each one of those, an absolute advantage. Um, but then you had David Ricardo come along and said, you know what? Um, Adam Smith, I, th I think you're you're not catching the entire gist of what's going on with trade. It's not really just about the absolute advantage of how many you can produce more than someone else, but it's really about the comparative advantage. And in comparative advantage, you you measure the comparative sort of productivity of producing one good versus another good. And and so as you find the relative productivity and efficiencies that are gained, one will be, have a comparative advantage of producing good X, and the other person will have uh, an advantage in, in good Y. And the same thing happens across borders, right? We think about in the United States, we really have a system of free trade among all of the states here in the, the U.S., um, and that works out quite well. But somehow, if it goes across the border to Mexico, that that's not the same sort of sort of thing. And, it, and therefore, we have a trade. If we have a trade deficit, then that must be a bad deal. And, and when we get back to the core parts of economics, it's about expanding the markets with which you can sell your product at. And on the flip side of that, right, that you can consume more products that um, at maybe a cheaper price or maybe that has a higher quality than you could domestically. 
Yeah, so you had mentioned Milton Friedman, uh, who is one of my favorite economists also, and he has a son, David Friedman, who's also an economist, and I think he kind of, he had a little story or parable that really enca- simply encapsulates the whole thing. So he, he asks us, he says, you know, imagine that someone comes out with some new technology that lets you make cars out of wheat, right? So he builds a factory, the wheat goes in one side of the factory, and cars come out the other end, right? And everybody and and the the process is significantly cheaper than, you know, the this the traditional means of making cars. So everybody is, you know, they're very uh, you know, amazed by this. He's hailed as a, kind of a genius and then one night a, a reporter sneaks into the factory and, you know, to try and f- figure out how he, how he's doing this and he discovers that he's not actually turning the wheat into cars. He's putting mm-hmm. the wheat you know, there's a there's a tunnel and the tunnel goes to a boat in a port and, you know, the, the wheat gets loaded up on the boat and it goes to Japan. And in Japan, they trade the wheat for cars and then bring the cars back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how he's doing it. And suddenly people are up in arms. You know, this guy is, you know, exploiting people and, and you know, the auto workers are getting thrown out of a job or whatever. But from an economic point of view, it's the same thing, right? Yep. Trade uh, and technology, both of them can get us more of what we want at a lower cost. There can be individuals who get caught up in that uh, and the jobs that they had are no, you know, no longer make sense in, in the new uh, economy. But, you know, to that extent, being against trade is sort of like being against te- technological improvement, which I don't think most people are, at least not if they're listening to this podcast. Yeah. It, and and one thing that I would mention is, is, look, I'm not here to say that some people aren't hurt through the trade situation, right? Um, it's but what we often have, what often happens is the issue that Frederick Bastiat talked a lot about, right? Which is the seen versus the unseen. We see the auto manufacturers that are being potentially hurt. I'll also put it in air quotes, right? Hurt um, from trade agreements, but we what we don't see or the unseen are the uh, many people who benefit from the trade agreement. Or think about it another way, the acute costs to the auto sector and the dispersed benefits of, of consumers and other producers in the process who pay less for, for autos in this case. Um, and, and I bring up autos because in the U.S.-Mexico deal, it's one of the most concerning parts that I have with this deal, other than Canada not being involved yet. Um, which I hopefully they will, but but is where you have this parts of origin that says that an auto must have 75% of all of its parts must be produced in either the United States or Mexico, and that's up from 62.5%. So what that means is that additional percentage that that's now being a parts of origin of U.S. and Mexico has to come from somewhere that's probably more costly and has maybe even lower quality because that's the reason why it was produced elsewhere before. And in addition, 40 to 45% of the auto sector's workers have to get, have, be paid a wage of $16 an hour, which is much higher than what they're getting paid in Mexico. So this kind of goes directly at Mexico and says, hey, look, we don't want all of our auto uh, manufacturers to go to Mexico. But at the same time, that's going to put a huge burden on the auto, uh, um, auto purchasers, meaning consumers. How hard do you think the U.S. had to twist Mexico's arm to say, we want you to, uh, we want Mexican auto workers to make more money? Yeah. <laughs> um, probably not as much, really, right? Because they want them to get paid more, but they're not thinking about maybe the flip side that says we may lose some of our um, products. I mean, one thing we know about economics, and more of our production is what I meant to say, um, one thing we know about economics is the law of demand, right? If, if the price goes up, 
there's going to be less consumption. And the process could even be even expanded in this case because what you might see is that there's going to be more production in the United States and maybe even Canada if they end up getting involved in this uh, agreement and, and less in Mexico. Tell us a little bit more about the, the current U.S.-Mexico pact as it stands, apart from the, the rules of origin what, what are, and the, uh, the wage rate, uh, raise. Are there any other surprising developments out of the pact as it stands right now? Well, I would say one of the positive things there is that if you go back to whenever this agreement was uh, originally formed, there wasn't a lot of e-commerce going on, very little, right? <laughs> so there wasn't a reason to really put that digital trade um, into the agreement. And so what they did was is they made no tariffs, basically duty-free, on digital trade. And I think that's a, a positive part as there's been more e-commerce over time and probably will continue to be. Um, another slightly positive thing was that by the Trump administration wanted to review NAFTA, um, basically have a sunset clause every five years. And what this U.S.-Mexico bilateral deal, trade deal was, was to make the contract for 16 years and have a, uh, where you could go through and review it every six years. Now, I say it's a slight positive because the original agreement had no uh, sunset provision, which would be better, um, but at least it wasn't the five years. Um, and also when there's some agriculture, when you look at agriculture in general, there were no tariffs um, that were added and or subsidies. And so I think that's also a key part. There was some intellectual property that was being upheld here. But, you know, there's really not a lot of, unless you all know something different, there's not a lot of intellectual property that's being stolen by Mexico or the United States. This was really a signal to, to China. Yeah, this is one of the kind of weird things about how the trade issue has developed is that in the campaign and in the early part of the administration, yes, Mexico, you know, there were some concerns about Mexico and trade, but uh, for Mexico, it seemed like the campaign focus was more on the immigration issue and for trade it was mostly china right and now it seems like it's kind of morphed to where well our the big trade battle is not china not even mexico necessarily but canada <laughs> or, or or europe so how do you how, how have you seen that kind of progress or develop or whatever the opposite of develop would be regress regress in terms of the the arguments being used to justify these different policies yeah, it's been quite fascinating to to watch, not in a good way, <laughs> uh, astonishing, um, to see how China is being brought up with every other country around, that somehow this is a an issue for national defense, national security, um, even with looking at Canada, <laughs> you know, and um, I'm not so, I haven't heard of Canada wanting to attack us anytime soon. Um, yeah, they're right there though, Vance. I mean, they're, they're very yes. close. You know? And they burned down the White House before. Uh, there's some necessary fear. I, I don't know. I, uh, but I don't think I so. I think we could take them. I think we could yeah. probably take them. Uh, no offense <laughs> to any can Canadian listeners that are out there. Yeah, and you know, but here's the thing. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where you have these trade deficits and somehow the tariffs that are in place are making it to where, where you're losing in this process. And so it must be the other country's fault, right? We point at the other country and don't look at internally of what we need to do. For example, um, there was a nice infographic up on Twitter here recently 
that talked about the tariffs on between the United States and Canada. And there are dairy products that Canada has a high tariff on. But, you know, that's only after you've met a certain quota threshold. So you duty free up to that point, And then there's a high tariff afterwards and some somewhere right around 250 percent. But if you look at a lot of other products that are exported to Canada from the United States, that are exported from Canada to the United States, um, making it to where there's a tariff put on place by the United States, there are high levels of tariffs. When you look at beverages and tobacco, it's almost 20%. When you look at sugars, um, it's also close to 20%. So there are a lot of tariffs that we actually put on place on Canadian imports as well. We don't hear a lot of talk about that, but it's because we're trying to pick out specific sectors. James Buchanan, Public Choice Economics, another one of my favorite economists, looks at the rent-seeking behavior that takes place. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now. That's the reason why NAFTA is more than 1,700 pages. It's not because we're just looking at free trade to allow for people to be more pros- prosperous. We're looking at ways to help out interested, you know, in, uh, specific interest, interested parties. So let me ask, one defense I think that you hear of the administration's approach on some of these issues is to say, look, if everybody, the leaders of China and Mexico and Canada and everybody read their Milton Friedman, then they would know that the best world is a world without any tariffs and they would all just repeal their tariffs and we would be fine. But we don't live in that world. And so by threatening to increase some of our tariffs on other nations, that could be a, uh, a bargaining tactic, a negotiating ploy that could lead to lower tariffs overall. Because we could say, well, we'll will not do our tariffs if you get rid of the tariffs that you have on us uh, and so forth. And this is something that I think, you know, Trump himself has occasionally at least uh, alluded to this this idea. So what do you what do you say? What, what would you say about that defense of the administration is that, you know, they're uh, ultimately they, you know, they're they're working towards a lower tariff world, but they they need to do it. Uh, they need to use carrots and sticks in order to get there. Yeah, I think the carrots and sticks is a good uh, analogy to use here because it seems like we're just you kind of go in by hitting them with in the head first with the stick. <laughs> but when you put in that tariff, because look, if tariffs contribute to better trade deals, I think that's a slippery slope to have to go down. I mean, a tariff is nothing more than a tax. And to me, you, you shouldn't use taxes in this sort of manner. Taxes should be used to fund government. And this isn't necessarily what this is trying to be used for, at least not for not the reason why the Trump administration has advocated for it. Back in the day, I mean, if you look back into our, our founding tariffs, surely, you know, sure, they were being used to fund government. Um, there was also some protectionist protectionism that was going on by Hamilton and others at that time. But the r- source of collection of revenue doesn't seem to be the main focus of tariffs today, it's really, as you said, is a way to combat other, other, other countries and maybe to get them in a position where they're willing to negotiate. Look, maybe the steel tariffs had something to do with this U.S.-Mexico trade deal. I'm not here to say that it, it didn't have anything to do with it, but I would be highly skeptical to think that it had a great deal to do with it. It's just like with Canada. Is Canada really going to come to the table over tariffs? It, if anything, it may piss them off ev- even more. Now, I will say that, look, Canada they're our second highest, second largest trading partner in the world. I mean, this is very important for Canada to be involved. At the same time, Canada exports a good portion of their products to the United States. 
And so I think they're going to be involved anyways. Um, without even having this tariff, they're going to want a better agreement or an agreement in general to not have foreign trade uncertainty. And that's something I've been writing about recently is that this uncertainty, I think, is leading to less economic growth and slower job creation than we otherwise would have after the beneficial regulatory reforms and cuts last year and the tax reform, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was a $1.5 trillion tax cut over a decade on a static basis. And the potential for tariffs could be in the ballpark, at least from what the Tax Foundation shows, of around $100 billion already per year. (laughs) That's going to substantially reduce the benefits that we would have seen from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And so whenever you're looking at places like China, don't hurt the American people right, and consumers by putting in place tariffs. Let's think about ways that we can put ourselves in a position to combat their poor trade practices, which I would, you know, I would argue, and y'all may differ with me, but I think that the Trans-Pacific Partnership would actually been a better approach for us to um, to go into because that was a lot of the, the countries that China trades with and, and they had um, strong IP intellectual property sort of restrictions in, or provisions in place. And I think that would have been a better way to combat what's going on in China and getting them to have freer trade than this tariff approach that's hurting con- American consumers. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned the offsets, you know, you're, we're cutting taxes, but we're also imposing new taxes or whatever. I, I know the administration also, they recently announced that they were going to roll back CAFE standards, the vehicle miles standards for automobiles. Uh, and the, the chief justification that they had for that was, well, these you know standards are going to make cars more expensive and that could have all sorts of negative uh, effects, which I agree with. But the ironic thing is that the expected increase in car prices from the tariffs is supposed to about it's about the same as what the increase from the cafe standards would have been so mm. you know mm-hmm. you, you're kind of giving with one the what the administration gives with one hand it can take away with the other i guess yeah yeah and it'll be interesting too to see how high that auto prices go assuming that all this works out right with the parts of origin the higher minimum wages um 16 an hour this could be a serious blow to the auto sector um, if people don't buy as many cars. I mean, people are becoming richer, more prosperous right now. We've got an unemployment rate across the U.S. at 3.9%. Real wages are finally starting to rise um, slowly, but they are rising. And so we've seen a more robust economy, 4.2% GDP growth rate in the second quarter, the highest since 2014. A lot of positive things. And why would you want to raise taxes <laughs> uh, in, in this whole process is, is kind of mind-blowing to me. So what happens if, if Canada does not join um, NAFTA 2.0? Well, you know, if, if they don't join, I mean, there's those in Congress who have already said, look, we're, we're not willing to vote for this. Um, which right now we're in this 90-day period called Trade Promotion Authority to where Congress has a review process that they'll look over this bilateral deal and and, and then if or when Canada gets in, they'll look over that as well. Um, But they are trying to do this 90-day period before um, AMLO, uh, Obrador, comes in in on December 1st so that way they can sign the agreement with the other other respective countries. Now, if Canada doesn't get involved... Some in Congress already said they're not going to vote for this, and so it, it, it may die. I'm hopeful, though, that something will get done because, look, we've got to get Canada involved in this. And I know there have been some, there, there have been some reservations by the Canadians 
probably rightfully so on on some of the issues on a couple of the chapters. I think Doug, you have more knowledge on some of this than than I do, as you've been kind of tweeting about it. <laughs> but 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 so I know that that is a serious concern and and one that I hope can be overcome. So you had alluded to earlier that uh, some of the tariffs are being justified on grounds of national security, right? And this is something I think this is. E- e- some people, even who are free traders, will make an exception for national defense, right? Certain things, certain, the argument is we have to have certain industries here uh, in case there's a war and our supplies get cut off, whatever. So what do you make of that? Do you subscribe to that argument or exception in general? And then what do you make of it as applied to these tariffs here? Yeah, some of my good friends that are, you know, definitely free market oriented um, have made this specific argument that this is for national security, and you know, if if we if we are going to continue to lose out on steel and aluminum production here in the U.S. because of the dumping that's going on by the Chinese, and wherever they dump it, other countries can can obtain that that cheaper steel or. or um, increased supply of steel, therefore lowering their prices. And so this could be on a global scale, which is one reason why they've been advocates of the steel tariffs, not only on China, but on many countries, because they'll just be dumped somewhere else. I don't, look, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that sort of approach. I don't think that using, using tariffs, using a tax for national security is a, is a good, is good policy. In, in fact, I would think that assuring that we have the strongest economy here in the United States is good policy to avoid national defense issues. You know, and, and a, a key part of that would be that we need to get a control of our national deficits. And our national debt is now over $21 trillion, more than our entire economy. Those are the things that could certainly lead to us being weaker on a national defense playing ground as well. And, and two, when you look at the steel manufacturers, just like the auto manufacturers, I think that we really need to look at internally, right? Domestic policy. How is that influencing these decisions, right? When you look at unions, unions really has really drove a lot of these auto manufacturers out of Detroit for years, decades which is why many of them are now coming to places like Texas. I think by having the highest corporate tax rate in the developed world by the, 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 by the federal government, which, which was at 35%, was a huge impediment to more growth. By lowering that down now to 21%, which gets us closer to the worldwide average of 22%, just below the, the global average, I think that's a positive thing. That starts to allow us to be more competitive, whether it's the steel manufacturers, the, the um, aluminum manufacturers, whoever is going to be building the things that we need for national defense, I think that's the way that you bring about more national security, um, not by going after, you know, using tariffs and things of that nature. And, you know, and we're spending hundreds of billion dollars also already on national security and the national defense. How much more do we need to spend? How much do we already have in, in inventory? I think these are all questions we need to look at before we just say, well, we've got to do these tariffs because of national defense or national security concerns. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that U.S. steelmakers have a market share of about 72% of the domestic market. And I believe the Department of Defense says that they, they need about 3% of that production. So mm. it's it's a, just sort of as a matter of the facts on the ground, it's it's a pretty hard argument. Yeah, um, and Doug, too, Doug, you know, too, is that um, steel producers are only about 100,000 jobs. Well, I, I say only. There are about 100,000 jobs across the United States. But if you look at the steel consuming factors, it's closer to 800,000. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you mentioned a moment ago tax, and that kind of brings us to uh, the second topic that we wanted to discuss with you. Uh, you talk a lot about the Texas model, and uh, you know one of those uh, aspects is is tax. But give us give us your your viewpoint on what the what the Texas model means to you. So the the Texas model is really a, an institutional framework that is has been built on relatively low taxation, no personal income tax, which I think is huge. One of only nine states without a personal income tax. Um, relatively less government spending and less regulation overall. These that sort of institutional framework has really been the impetus to allowing for more economic growth and more job creation and for just people being more um, prosperous in general. Whenever I look at this, I look at different factors. One way to look at it is what's called the Economic Freedom of North America Index, put out by the Fraser Institute. Some of my good friends over at um, SMU's O'Neill Center for Global Markets and, and Freedom, Dean Stanzel, he's one of the, the, the lead authors. And they look at government spending, taxation, and labor market freedom within this index, and they rank Texas tied with, tie, tie with Florida as the second most free um, across the nation. And if you compare us with other large states like California, um, Texas and California, the two largest states in the United States in terms of population and economic output, um, but di- really diametrically opposed um, sort of governing philosophies. You know, Texas ranks second most free. California ranks second worst or uh, second least free. And and so when you look at the economic sort of indicators over time, not just a one or two year sort of um, simple mo- a simple look at the economic variables, but more of a smoothed out longer term sort of um, sort of, sort of time trend. What you notice is that Texas leads the way, not only among t- California, but many other states. In fact, Texas has created one out of every four four jobs nationwide since the Great Recession. I mean, it's just quite fascinating what's been done here. And and some would say, well, it's just low-wage jobs, and that's just not the case. Sure, there are low-wage jobs. There are low-skilled people who will take those low-wage jobs, but there are also many high-wage jobs. When you look at measures of like income inequality, in Texas, we actually have lower levels of income inequality when you look at the top 10% of income shares in the state compared to places like California that has the highest personal income tax rate in the nation at 13.3%. It's just quite fascinating what you find. And look, I'm not here to say whether income inequality is good or bad or whatever sort of metric, but that's the rhetoric that we hear from some. And in fact, there's lower levels of income inequality here. And even when you look at poverty, the Supplemental Poverty Index out by the Census Bureau measures for cost of living adjustments and, and other things and finds that California has the highest level of supplemental poverty in the nation, whereas Texas is about middle of the pack. We could do better, though. There's a lot of things that we could definitely do better with. Okay, but of, of course, Dean Stansel over at the O'Neill Centers, you know, he's going to say good things about Texas. There's clearly <laughs> some detractors out there. So it, you and I discussed this a little bit before. The Tax Foundation, they just came out with their list of the, the most competitive states, and we didn't make their top 10. And then Cato just did their, their index, the Freedom in the 50 States, and they actually rank us as 21. So what's different about the way you or Dean Stansel is viewing Texas and our economic freedom versus, say, Cato or, um, or the Tax Foundation? Well, you know, I think that there are certainly things that we need to improve on, and those are reflected by what's in the, um, small, uh, the, the, the Business Tax Climate Index by the Tax Foundation or the Cato Institute's Freedom of the 50 States. And in, in particular, 
the business tax climate index by tax foundation ranks us 13th you know in texas we like to be number one <laughs> right we don't want to be number 13 and a big part of that has to do with our business franchise tax which is really a gross receipt style tax it's something that was was um transformed back in 2006 when we had a, a school finance issue here and it's really just a um, it's really like an income tax on businesses that that's pushing a lot of businesses out of texas so that's something that needs to be done away with that's what we've been pushing for at the texas public policy foundation is to eliminate the business franchise tax the other key impediment to economic growth that we see within our tax code is looking at property taxes Property taxes rank the sixth most burdensome, according to the Tax Foundation, nationwide. And so that's something that are push, is pushing people out of their homes. Um, that's something that certainly needs to be done done with, done away with. Um, and, and look, I mean, I, like I said, relatively less government spending than other states. But that doesn't mean that we're spending um, as little as we should be. You know, if you just measure our total budget compared with population growth plus inflation, if you want to consider those good metrics, to, that a good metric to use, we're spending 15 billion more dollars in this two-year budget that we're currently in than we would have been if we just measured population growth and inflation since the 0405 budget. That's about a thousand dollars more for a family of four just this year that's spending more in taxes, and so that's also not a good indicator. And if you look at it from the Mercatus Center, they actually show that we have they have uh, we have a lot of regulations here in Texas that we need to do away with. Another thing that I look at, you know, really in my, the Center for Economic Prosperity, where I'm the director of, I look at government barriers to competition and weed those out. And a big one is occupational licensing. I mean, that's just a, a huge one that is keeping people impoverished, whether you have a criminal record, whether you have a low income. Um, it's just really devastating for a lot of these folks. And so I think when we look at business franchise tax, property taxes, occupational licensing, those are just a few of the things that we could do a lot better here in Texas. Let me just also add, particularly with the Cato list, is that the freedom in the 50 states, those rankings are including not only your economic climate restrictions, you know, taxes, regulation, occupational licensing as part of it, but, you know, they're libertarians, so they also are considering social liberalism, social freedom. Texas is a pretty conservative state on a lot of issues. So I think that's part yeah. of the reason. If you look at just the economic thing, we're ranked 10, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and then, of course, occupational licensing, definitely a big growing issue, definitely something that we could do more on in Texas. There's a lot of occupations here that there's no particular reason why you would want them to have a, a license and yet they do so that's that's certainly something that we are passionate about it, you know what's interesting is that um cosmetologists in texas have to go through 350 days worth of training whereas in emt emergency medical technician someone who, someone who i would argue definitely um helps with your public safety and health issues has only 35 days of required training a cosmetologist 10 times more training yeah, well, you know, a bad hair day, that's that's uh, the matter of life and death, I guess. Talking about the Texas model, do you want to say a word about the, uh, the Conservative Budget Coalition? Yeah, so the Conservative Texas Budget Coalition is a group of a, num a number of partners, and um, including R Street Institute and Lone Star Policy Institute. So thank you both. Uh, we're all going to be working on a lot of key issues going into this 2019 legislative session here in Texas that starts in January. And... You know, there, there are a couple of key parts. One of those is to pass a conservative Texas budget, which is one that doesn't grow by more than population growth plus inflation. That is really a maximum, right? 
we would love to see the budget actually contract or not grow at all. Um, but there's some idea that the government should grow by population inflation. And in fact, for a number of years, like I mentioned earlier, the state's budget has been growing by more than that key metric. So just getting it back on back on pace with population and inflation is important and essential. And then we can really start even contracting or shrinking it. Um, and, and part of that would be putting in place a stricter spending limit. We currently have a spending limit in Texas uh, that's based on personal income growth. And, you know, it's always one of these things. Why would the government need to grow as fast as people's incomes? If people's incomes are growing, that should mean that there's less demand for government services, particularly in the welfare sort of areas. And, and so that doesn't really make any sense. But at least you could argue, I think, that if the population is growing, there's probably some demands for government. And if there is some cost of, of providing those provisions, that maybe that's another reason um, for it to grow. But so having a stricter spending limit based on population growth and inflation would be important. But other key ones are, popula- are, are po- property taxes, you know, slowing the growth of those over time and actually providing real property tax relief by cutting property taxes over time. One option that we've put out recently at the Textbook Policy Foundation is to use state surplus dollars, really limit government spending, and then using state surplus dollars to buy down the school maintenance and operation portion of property taxes, which is about half the tax property tax burden in Texas, buy that down each session until half of it is gone, right? Until half the whole property tax is gone. I think that would be huge for people to be, be not being pushed out of their homes and moving us closer to a, um, a more efficient, a more liberty-friendly um, type of tax being a, a, a consumption tax, a sales tax. I mean, look, any type of tax that you have is going to have some sort of cost to it. You try to reduce the dead weight loss, the cost as much as possible. And I think you get closer to that from something like a, a sales tax. Uh, we mentioned earlier about eliminating the franchise tax. There's um, a tax relief fund, which which basically where you put money into it and it reduces taxes so people can be more prosperous. And then finally, budget transparency. You know, taxpayers should know where their dollars are going. Every one of those are taxpayer dollars. And so let's make sure that they can be able to prosper and satisfy their desires as they see fit um, as much as possible. And then know that if the government's spending some of their money, that's going, it's being spent efficiently and effectively. So a final question for you. On, uh, on social media, there seems to be a heated argument about the pronunciation of graphics interchange format. Do you find that the pronunciation of your last name has a similar type of controversy? I do. Yes. What are the what are, what are the uh, what do you typically hear? Well, I often get um, Jen, Vance Jen. You know, I've also been called Vince Gill. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, which kind of kind of works, but I wish I had his royalties. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Vance, I don't forget. I heard someone call you Vance once. That's, so. This is true. Yes, it's true. Yeah, but it is Vance Ginn. Um, and I, you know, back with the Vince Gill thing. Like, I'm a former drummer. I used to be a, a rock drummer for a band called Syndrome in Houston. And um, so maybe, you know, maybe I could. We should start a band, and I could get some royalties there. This is what I like to do with the program. I like to. I like to resolve important issues like this. That, that's important. <laughs> and I've been an avid listener of the Urbane Cowboys podcast, and so I think y'all are doing a great job. And you know, keep it going. We need more of these discussions um, and to really have more civil discourse, right? And I, I just think that's so important. Um, even in the work that I do on a day-to-day basis, I try to make sure that we have this civil dis- discourse happening and really having the um, civil society at, in general come back online. We often turn too much to government. We need 
to look at families, communities, things of that nature. And I think when we start doing that, we'll also start having better discussions about thing that we, things that we disagree on and, and really start talking more about um, key issues and having key solutions. All right. Well, th thank you so much for, uh, for joining us and your kind words. Well, thank you for having me.